Hi, this is your host, Sophia Vidal, on the eighth episode of The First Cut, where we interview top medical professionals getting answers to your questions, which you might not have had the opportunity to ask, especially during this pandemic. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Niraj Basin. So I'm Niraj Basin. I'm a consultant vascular surgeon, which means that I operate and care for people with problems with their blood vessels, basically everywhere in the body other than within other than the heart and the chest. I also have a leadership role where I'm the clinical director of vascular services across the whole of West Yorkshire. So that's more of a leadership role, ensuring that um, patient pathways, workforce and all of that and, and the quality of care we deliver in our service across West Yorkshire is of a consistent high standard. Right. So what does an average day at work look like for you, if there is such a thing? Yeah, so I think the beauty of what I do and sort of the beauty of medicine uh, generically, whatever uh, sort of um, aspect of medicine you go into is, is there isn't an average day. Right. And what I mean by that is yeah, we have a structure and I'll talk to you about that. But even within that structure, every patient you come across is different. Every operation you do is slightly different. Um, and when you've got different facets of your job, like I've described, you're using you're almost using different parts of your brain, you're using different skills uh, through the week. So I have a sort of split in my job that it, my job, and I say, I know it sounds funny, is split into 12 parts. Okay. Seven of those parts are clinical. So within that what i will do is i'll do a clinic a week i will do a day's what we describe major operating i'll do a day i'll do half a day of the more sort of minor to moderate operations one in 10 weeks i'll do a night overnight emergency cover um, one in 10 weeks i'll do a whole week of daytime emergency cover so that's how my sort of clinical week works out and very occasionally, and I'm sure we'll discuss this in it later on, is that one in 10 weeks, I also do a full 72 hour weekend on call shift. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be a question of what are the challenges in the future? <laughs> you know, that's, that's for me is something we'll talk about. But then in my leadership time, uh, you know, we, that's about meetings, about creating equality and a high quality service for patients service development, creating pathways for patients across our patch. Um, so that's a sort of, that's, that's a regular week, if you like. That's how it's split up, what I do. But like I say, the, the thing is, is, it's never the same. And that's a real attraction, that everything's always different. So how do you think your daily life has changed due to the pandemic? So the first thing is, is it's changed drastically and dramatically um in terms of the operating or the clinical side all the processes are really different um in terms of if you look at clinic where we would ordinarily see virtually everyone on a face-to-face -face basis they would come in and uh you know we we'd see them on a face-to-face -face basis basis and we'd examine them and chat to them and be sort of be able to build quite a good rapport with them now there is we do a lot more on a telephone follow-up basis or virtually 
Now, that's good in a sense, because there was some what I do, we have a lot of by by the definition, by the definition of what I do, we have a lot of elderly male patients. And you look at it now, and I we used to we'd service an area of a uh, quite a vast quite a significant geographical area, and patients were having to get changed, you know, get dressed up as some of these elderly gentlemen do in their suits because they're coming into hospital. They'll put their regimental badges on, and they drive in, have to drive around the car park, um, looking for a space, walk into us, and if they had. A problem that was going well or everything had gone well they then wait perhaps if my clinic was delayed we'd see them for five minutes and then they'd have to do all of that in reverse which isn't really fair or appropriate so now we can do some of that over the telephone that is a benefit really um you think there are any uh, downsides of that as well yeah i think the downsides of the telephone is is that you are reliant on you know there's only a certain amount you can get over the telephone there's being able to, so in what I do say for your, I, I deal with things like aneurysms, which is an abnormal enlargement of a blood vessel. I deal with things like uh, peripheral vascular disease, which is blockages of arteries. Being able to feel someone's pulses, being able to see someone's leg or abdomen, you know, is really useful. But look, just for reassurance for anyone who's listening to this and for you, it's not a case of, we're wedded to that and if it's on the telephone that's it clearly you know you'll have an interaction if someone it can make processes smoother so someone we can say oh, look you need a scan before you see us so yeah. save them coming in but if there's a situation where we think you know we really need to see this patient then we still absolutely bring them in in the right time frame um because of covid a lot of our lower complexity work had been suspended right uh, so things for me that means things like operating on varicose veins so what we were then left with left with was the more emergency high pressure high complex operating so things which are called crit critical limb ischemia when someone's circulation to their leg is that bad that they're at risk of losing it if we don't do something severe limb infections um people forming clots in their legs so it interrupts circulation and so that's sort of what we were left with and from the sort of leadership aspect we were having to do a lot over well we still do a lot over teams and just that face-to-face -face, uh, being in the same room as someone can be so much more powerful than trying to create that rapport agreement over a teams and I suppose the final thing I'd say is one of the greatest things about what I do and hopefully you'll be doing in the future is your colleagues and the interactions that you have with them, the support they give you, the uh, energy they give you, the inspiration they give you. And because we're all working a bit more remotely and because of the social distancing requirements, you know, you, you're more in a situation now of where you come in, you do what you need to do. And then you, you know, you go back to your office or you, you know, you leave. And so that social element of that we used to have has has reduced, you know, significantly. And that was a real, you know, the morale, you know, talk about morale. You know, that was that was the thing that really kept your morale going. 
and kept you grounded and kept you happy at work was the those interactions with your colleagues so just sort of briefly those are the sort of things that have changed so how would your daily work and lifestyle compared to that of other specialties especially within your leadership role yeah so i mean a leadership role is one of those things that i've chosen to do um not everyone has to do it and i think again we'll come on to that there's a lot of there's a lot of variety that you can get through a career in medicine whether that be research whether that be teaching whether that be work outside of the hospital but so there's a lot of variety so for me the specialty that I do is quite consultant slash senior driven because a lot of it is quite complex high risk high demand surgery and so, for example, and when you're on call, the things that I would get called for at two, three in the morning are for someone who's either bleeding or has blocked a uh, blood vessel that goes to part of their body. Now, you know, there are some things people who present with different, in different specialties with different conditions where that can actually be managed by a more junior member of the team without ringing them or can be managed by a junior member of the team with a phone call. But for those sorts of things, irrelevant of the sort of time, I need to be in and I either need to be training someone and supervising them doing it in a safe, competent manner, or I need to be doing it myself. So there's a sort of more immediate demand. Um, And like I said, because of that, you sort of, what I get with my specialty and what I feel is, is that I get quite an immediate return on that because you do what you need to do and then you see the immediate effect. There are other specialties where that effect, that effect is still as powerful in terms of quality of life, improvement in life, but can be more indirect because what you're doing is changing doses of tablets, you know, trying different inhalers. So you are still having a very important effect on someone's life, quality of life, functioning. But so that's how my specialty is different. And the other reason I chose my specialty, which is vascular surgery, is because those other things that I described in terms of tailoring medication, you know, I say that's for the clever people who work out the complex stuff. The thing about what I do is, is, is quite theoretically, it's quite simple. If there's an abnormality of a blood vessel, you're either going to go through it or you're going to go around it. And right. as simple as it sounds, essentially, it's just plumbing that I do. And um, so technically, it's demanding, but theoretically, you know it may be not as demanding as other specialties and some of the medical specialties so do you think you'd have any other kind of career paths that you might have taken if not medicine so yeah I mean look I uh, what I was actually good at and again important I think for you and people who are starting out down this career path what I have to say and personally for me the most difficult part, we've, I've had to do lots of exams, you know, through school and after medical school. But for me, what I would consider is the biggest hurdle that I had was my A-levels. Because once you get into something that you want to do and stimulates you and interests you, you sort of, you want to do it. 
whereas where I was doing math, A-level maths and A-level chemistry and et cetera, I wouldn't say it excited me like all the subjects did at uni or, or, or as I subspecialized. So, and going back to the original question, the subjects I was probably best at at school was English and French. Okay. So if I wasn't doing this, I may have done something more related to that along maybe along the lines of law or something. I don't know. Yeah. I would have probably been in some office job uh, somewhere. Um, or ideally, if I'd have fulfilled my dream, I could have been a superstar DJ like Fatboy Slim or something <laughs> like that. But, <laughs> but who knows? So do you think, which medical school did you go to? Did you say King's? So I went, I went to, well, it, it's now King's. I went to, it was called at the time, United Medical and Dental Schools of Guy's and St. Thomas's in London. So it was Guy's Hospital, St. Thomas's Hospital in London. And in my last year, just as I, I think it was in the last term almost, that I was there, that then um, joined with King's and became GKT Medical School. Um, so yeah, I was based in London, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, it was expensive, um, but just a huge amount of fun. Huge amount. So do you of fun. think if you were to go to medical school again, you might have changed anything with your knowledge now, done anything differently? I um, I feel that I'm in a really privileged position because I look back at it and think I wouldn't change a, a thing about what I did or where I went or how I approached it you know i we worked hard but we played really hard and i mean that socially i mean that on a sports field i had an absolutely brilliant time i don't know you know i know the curriculum's changed and now there's more sort of more of a continuous assessment if you like but when we were doing it you know pretty much pretty much you did projects etc cetera, etc cetera, but pretty much everything was done on end of year exam right so you could you could really enjoy 48 weeks of the year and then you knew for four weeks of the year that was it you were going to just like literally you know head down head in the book morning yeah. noon, night you know we supported each other through it uh and but yeah so I wouldn't I really wouldn't change where I went how I approached it what I did I look back on it and I hope you will feel the same when you when you're there it was it, it was really one of the best parts of my life. It was so much fun. Um, it, it was great. And it's a privileged position that people are letting you in as well. As a student, bringing it back to the patients and why we go to uni. Um, it's a privileged position that when you're seeing people at their most vulnerable, they're allowing you to observe that and learn from that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was great. So what do you predict will be the biggest issues or challenges for the next generation of doctors? So that, yeah, that's really difficult to predict. I've seen things change through my, you know, just to give you sort of a couple of examples that have come to mind. So when I started out as a junior surgeon, I was one of the operations that you can do more often as a junior surgeon is an appendicectomy taking someone's appendix out when they've got appendicitis when I started doing that you do it as an open operation even before I got to the end of my training so within five six years 
the the routine way of doing that very quickly became doing it through keyhole surgery laparoscopically so the technology changed and you have to adapt to that when i started in my consultant job everything was written on paper there was letters going everywhere patients results would come to you on slips of paper now in the trust that i work at everything is electronic there is there is no paper so i suppose it's difficult to say what the future will hold i think there will be more technology more ai more robotics more you know there'll be an increasing use of technology and i think I think, and it's not that knowledge is expanding. I think, you know, things are being researched more. You're getting into more subspecialization. So it may be, I don't know, it may be that there's more subspecialization because the volume of knowledge that you need for each thing becomes so much that you don't become a generalist as much, yeah. um, but you have to know your bit and know your bit very well. I suppose the thing that will never change and that I can see has never changed and shouldn't change in the future is, is that the absolute core part of your job is caring for patients. Yeah. That's what you're there for. That's what you're here for. That's what drives you. That's why you do the job. How you care for them is different in terms of the technology you bring and how you document things and all of that. But ultimately, the absolute core of what you do is that rapport building that trust building that decision that joint and shared decision making with a patient about laying out the options this is what we could do what what's your thoughts and about that face-to-face interaction um and the care you can deliver or demonstrate and i hope that that won't change in the future me too <laughs> I think with AI, it's difficult because you want to incorporate it in the maybe more uh, mundane jobs uh, like paperwork, but you don't want to take away, like you say, that uh, holistic care aspect of medicine. Absolutely not. And that's, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. You use technology where technology adds benefit and adds value and adds efficiencies and adds safety, particularly as well. And, you know, and where it's convenient, you know, we, we're doing something at the moment, which is, you, you, well, you'll see things develop where people can sit in their own home and they have either an implantable device or have devices that talk via Wi-Fi and et cetera to the hospital. So someone can be sat at home and you can be taking their oxygen levels. You could be monitoring flow through something, you know, blood flow through something, et cetera, et cetera, which is fascinating and absolutely that's a helpful addition and at times it'll stop people coming in but you know there is something about laying your eyes on someone laying your hands on someone because you can't treat scans in isolation you can't treat numbers in isolation so whilst the technology will be helpful again like you said it, that core part of being a doctor a surgeon is is uh, about that direct interaction and, and you use that word holistic uh that that's about the case you deliver yeah it was an interesting point that you brought up about uh AI actually being more safer in some scenarios because i did i do i do forget you know you could know everything there is to know about a topic but human error just is inevitable in some cases 
yeah and you know you in some cases you have to do things say quickly you're under stress you're under pressure and you know like you said human error we talk about learning from um, you know the aviation industry you're talking about shared learning from other industries and human error is a factor that you're never going to get rid of so if there are some facets within that you know we have on our electronic system one of the you know there's a risk when you're administering blood to people and one thing is that we can scan a barcode on a patient's wrist scan it to the the unit of blood we're giving making sure it's the right unit it's the right patient that it's compatible you know etc etc and that's where it can that's where it can create a really beneficial effect and help with safety prescribing you know, we like I said, a lot of our stuff now, well, in fact, all of our prescribing is online. And before, if you were doing something under pressure and you prescribed something and the patient had an allergy, yes, obviously, it'd go through pharmacy. You would hope that someone would pick it up. You should double check what you're doing. But now you would have an alert that pings up saying this medication, or even they may not be allergic, but do you know they're also on this medication and therefore the two can interact? So that's where it's really powerful for patient safety. Would you be happy for your son or daughter to go into a medicine? Yes. If, if, if that's what they wanted to do, you know, I, it's not a, um, it's, it, it, it's something you have to want to do. Um, it's not something that you do because you think, oh yeah, quite fancy, <laughs> quite fancy giving that a go. Um, it's not something that so. The commitment. I'm married. Yeah, yeah, and I'm married to a nurse, and so I will. I've got two boys, and I won't want either of my boys to feel the pressure of, oh, mum and dad work within healthcare, or so that's something I should do. They should want. They should love it. They should make their own decisions. Because I'll, I'll just give you an example as well, that my dad was a GP, he was a GP for 29 years. And my dad sort of had a GP practice that he saw me potentially taking over. Now, I decided I wanted to be a surgeon, but I could have felt the pressure to go and take over that practice. But I knew I had to make my own decisions. I, you know, you, you, work, you, you work for 40 whatever years of your life. So you want to know that in those difficult moments, that you're doing that um, in those difficult moments, you're not sat there thinking I'm only doing this because so-and-so said I should, or because I thought it would give me this. You've got to be doing it because you think actually this is what I wanted to do. This was my choice. And so if that's what they wanted to do, I'd absolutely encourage them into it. So what you said is I, I completely agree with, I think medicine's a massive commitment and it's, it's something that you have to want to do because you put so much time and effort into it. So going on from the wrong reasons that you said, what, what, what would you say are the specific right reasons for going into medicine? Maybe your reasons as well. Um, do you know, I, I, I think, again, I spoke earlier about being in a sort of privileged position. I could never see myself doing anything else just personally. Um, it sort of felt like this was it feels like this is what I was meant to do um you know I what what the right reasons for doing it doing it because you want to deliver care doing it because you want to make a difference and I know it sounds really cheesy and it always 
does. There's no way of sort of not making it sound cheesy particularly. But, um, you know, doing it because you feel you can make a difference. And, you know, knowing that you have the skills, the knowledge, the ability to do that. But most importantly, rather, is that you can create that connection with people and that you like that variety. You like dealing with people. You like seeing different people, even the more challenging individuals, that you see that as a challenge and you see that as um, you, you take something out of that. You know, you can't do it for the money. You know, if you wanted to do become a doctor to, to get rich, you're probably in the wrong in the wrong job. Um, there are areas <laughs> there's private medicine, like you know, I don't do private work, but there are certain fields of medicine that pay well, especially when you do private work. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, those are the reasons I chose to do it, and uh, yeah, uh, well. I think those are probably the main reasons why a lot of people are where they are now, because I think putting yourself through medical school, which although is a great experience, like you've said, it's it's a lot of work and it's uh, it's very difficult. So I think you need to have the right motivation or you probably won't succeed in it. So anyway, what would you say are the most challenging aspects of your job right now? Um, the challenging aspects to the sort of processes that we're having you know within covid now sort of things yeah. are things are very different things are very different um uh, and getting used to that getting used to that pressure getting used to that different way of working is is difficult the challenging things the other challenging things and the obviously challenging things for me are when you put your best into something uh, say an operation and despite your best efforts it doesn't necessarily go as well as you would you or the patients and their families would like it to go um, as I've said the things that we do are, are deal with sort of life and limb threatening conditions in a very occasionally very immediate nature and the the nature of what we do is is and the, the fact and the reality of what we do is is that if things don't go well despite your best efforts you can have a really sad outcome and so that can be difficult to deal with obviously how would you say you you deal with that uh, dealing with the emotional toll of life and death as you say um so one thing one of the best bits of advice i got when i was going for a consultant job was it doesn't matter where you are particularly it's about your colleagues because you know for me putting stitches in an aneurysm i'm putting stitches in i'm repairing something it doesn't necessarily matter whether i'm here australia america whatever you know it, it, if you see what i'm getting at technically yeah. it's the same process what matters is about in those situations where you need support at that time of the operation you need support after the procedure or you need to talk through stuff that you've got a really good group of colleagues around you who will provide that support who will talk through things and then sort of after that outside of your immediate work colleagues it's about doing things so it's about reflecting on it and making sure that you've done 
the right things. You've done everything you could have done and that there's nothing you would change. And that's really important. Um, and then beyond that, it's about, um, you know, in terms of work-life balance, it's about doing things that you can enjoy, that you, dis- you, know, you can disconnect. Time with friends and family, for me, things like going out for meals, um, playing cricket or squash with my boys. Uh, so all you've got in your head is chase that ball. Don't think about the operation yesterday, you know, just to hit that ball, chase that ball, whatever. And, um, and other things that sort of make you detach from what's happened. And that's not being disrespectful to what's happened because you understand that and you empathize with that and it does affect you, but you've got to keep going. And um, so, you know, one of the other things is that I unfortunately support Huddersfield Town. So me and my boys have season tickets with my nephews and the five of us sort of go down, sit there together and watch Huddersfield Town play. And, you know, that's about what they're doing and not about what I'm doing. And right. So it's about creating that detachment, that, that sort of space uh, for your head and for yourself between work and but getting that support within work. So have there been any particular highlights of your career so far that you can think of? Yeah, you know, I think the academic progression is uh, a highlight. You know, you come up, you come up, whatever sort of scope of medicine, whatever specialty within medicine you go to, you you naturally have progression exams, postgraduate exams developments whether that again like I said whether that be leadership you might want to do a qualification leadership if you're teaching you might want to do a qualification in 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 teaching if you're specializing in something you might need to take an exam in how you do something particularly so all those hurdles that you have to get over you always feel a real sense of achievement when you do that Um, but for me I think there's probably two cases that really stand out for me. One is um, a case where a lady had a chronic blockage of the blood supply to her bowel. So every time she ate, she developed very severe pain and therefore stopped eating and et cetera. And we couldn't open it up with a sort of minimally invasive x-ray based blue treatment so she needed a you know very major and relatively rare surgery and there's nowhere else that I knew of at the time that does a lot of this so after the appropriate discussion around risks and options and so on we you know we, we did that operation for her and uh, a lot of preparation a lot of counseling a lot of research did that and it went fantastically well and the operation we did continues to work really well. The other case that really stands out was where someone had developed, having had a repair of an aneurysm previously, then developed an abnormal connection between where we'd repaired the blood vessel and their bowel. So they were bleeding um, in an immediately life-threatening condition. And we did a 14-hour straight operation and you can imagine 
with what I've described, exceptionally high risk, technically and quite commonly an unsurvivable um, problem, pathology, and did a 14 hour operation, which I must say just almost <laughs> broke me. And um, about eight weeks later, he came literally strolling into the clinic and it, he came in dressed black trousers, black polo neck, these cowboy boots and a hat on, literally set his hat down and went, well, that was a bit much, wasn't it? And you just think, you just think, you know, I, that was just, that was a real highlight for me because you do a lot of high risk stuff and you do a lot of complex stuff and people's quality of life perhaps are impacted by what you've done. You know, they, they've survived or you, you know, they've returned to a certain degree of what their, their normality beforehand, but not completely. This guy came in having survived, which was the clearly 14 hours, the longest operation I've ever done, possibly, if not the most high risk emergency operation I've ever done. And he just breezed into clinic as if nothing had happened eight weeks previously. And that was a real highlight. That was brilliant. That's insane. So 14 hours, do you, you I assume you don't get any breaks during that either. So there was a point, so no, I had 10 minutes in that because wow. there was a point where actually, and again, this is about teamwork and colleagues. Yeah. Uh, the Because the we had two anaesthetists at that point who I'd worked with for years and we'd been going and we'd been going and we got to a point where we'd stopped the bleeding. We had a plan. We were just about to get um, start the reconstruction of his circulation because at this point we'd stopped all the circulation down to his legs. So we had to obviously reconstruct things and we were just about to start doing that. And they just said, look, you need 10 minutes. Um, you just need to go have a drink, have something to eat. And so literally I had 10, 15 minutes and they, you know, whilst another one of my colleagues just, you know, carried on with some other stuff that needed to be done. And then, uh, yeah, we, we, we finished it off. So it was uh, physically, obviously, mentally, obviously really demanding, but uh, a real sense of achievement, technically, personally, and most importantly for the patient at, at the end of it. So were there any defining moments in med school before that or after that that drew you to your specialty? So I went into med school knowing I wanted to be a surgeon. I didn't know what type of surgeon. Um, and then, so I listened to one of your other podcasts and I listened to the one you did with Richard Baker. Um, and Richard Baker, uh, spoke about mentors and inspiration yeah and that just made me think you know what he's he's absolutely right and that's what happened to me in that I had no I've, I've not had any experience as a junior surgeon I never experienced plastic surgery I never had a rotation in ear nose and throat surgery so things like that they, they were not necessarily on my radar but what I did was that I came, across, I came across an individual. So my first job out of university was a surgical job in Maidstone in Kent. And I came across a surgeon who was phenomenal. He was brilliant. He looked after us. 
personally, professionally. He uh, got us involved as very genius surgeons, trained us, um, and really made us feel part of the team and like we were contributing. And his specialty was vascular surgery. And I was like, well, this is good. And then I, it came back to what I uh, described before. I looked at it and thought, okay, so this is technically demanding. I've got to be good with my hands. I've got to be good technically. But the theory behind it is not massively difficult. And there'll be loads of vascular surgeons now listening to this up and down the country going, <laughs> doing down our specialty. Of course, it's really complicated. It sort of is, but it sort of isn't as well. Um, and um, so I thought, you know, I quite like this. And then I moved back up north um, and got, as part of my junior rotation, did a vascular, junior surgical rotation did a vascular job and met who uh, is now one of the professors of vascular surgery in Leeds. And again, absolute inspiration. Took me under his wing, basically from being a doctor, two years qualified, right to the point through research, through my senior surgical training, higher surgical training, into being a consultant and a peer of his. And I think that's the thing, you know, you'll experience lots of different things, but then you get inspired, you get a mentor, you find something that excites you, and then that's what you end up doing. My only piece of advice is, however, <laughs> what excites you in your 20s and 30s and you commit to doing for the rest of your life? When you're having to get out of bed in your 40s at 3 a.m., may not seem that exciting anymore. So, right. you know, you look at the, you look at some specialties and you think that is cool, you know, and you think that's amazing. Someone comes in bleeding and I watch them do all this stuff, stop that bleeding and reconstruct it. I want to be able to do that. And it is cool. But then when you're doing it at some point at three, four in the morning, you think actually. Some of those other specialties where I know my colleagues are just everything that, you know, some of the stuff that comes in the night can be left till the morning. That seems a little bit more exciting now than it did way back when. So find something that you like, find a person that inspires you, a role model, and, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. But you've got to do what you love, essentially. That's defining moments, finding something that you love uh, because you've got to do it at all hours of day and night. And you've got to do it for years. So you've got to be invested in it. So do you see medicine as a vocation for you? 100%. 100%. Um, I mean, I don't know there's much more to say to that than like we discussed before. Not in it. You can't be in it for the money. You can't be in it for the... Can't be in it for the status or the social status because you know, you've got to be in it for the right reasons. And it is absolutely a vocation. It does mean that I've missed sports days, family, you know, family weddings, birthdays of my kids and this and that. And, they, you know, we, they know that weekends when I'm on call, don't even ask me to do stuff because I'll be a little bit stressed. And they know that if we're going out for dinner, I've got to drive separately. And if the phone goes off, I'll just have to go. So. You know, but again, that's sort of because of the specialty I've chosen. I know there are other areas where it can be more structured, but even within those, 
whatever you choose, there are you're dealing with people, you're dealing with demands, and you're in something that you're dedicated to, and therefore it's a vocation and it requires sacrifice. Right. But like I said before, if you find something you love and inspires you, you you'll you won't look back on it with any regrets. So in your special in your specialty, uh, especially, uh, I can imagine that you deal with a lot of high stress situations. So if you're dealing with uh, a dilemma when the course of action isn't clear cut, do you have any specific steps in uh, how to make a decision on what to do? Yeah. So I mean, coming back to coming back to the lady I was describing that I operated on, who had a you know really complex problem. Right. <sighs> we ran it through we have a you know you'll have a multidisciplinary team meeting so your colleagues colleagues from other specialties your specialist nursing team your ward nursing team the physios the occupational therapists you know all these people who can contribute expertise into that decision making should be involved and are involved and so if you've got those high pressure cases where you've got time for that decision making um, you would run it through a multidisciplinary team meeting. Again, even with that lady, what I did is I spoke to senior surgeons regionally. My colleague who I described took me under their wing, the professor of surgery in Leeds, speak to people, you know, even nationally, internationally, and say, look, this is what I'm thinking, looking at papers, et cetera, to, to realise that this is the right thing to do. That's in the plan situation. In the emergency situation, you know, we have a best interest principle, but even in daytime, middle of the night, you know, I phoned our phone colleagues and just said, look, this is the situation. I could do this. I could do that. What's your thoughts? So I think never thinking that you're alone right. and that you have to make those decisions alone. Um, when you're a junior doctor, you know, you'll have a mate who's, on call in the same hospital it might be three in the morning but there'll be someone else on call for another specialty and just ring them up and go look what do you reckon about this or you'll have senior support and like I said is that I had a, a case a few weeks back uh really really difficult high stress high intensity case and it was there was two op two options I could do at that point so I knew that I had a colleague on at three in the morning in Leeds so I rang them and said, look, I know you're asleep, but you're on call. And this is where I'm at. And I just wanted, this is what I'm planning on doing. This is the other option. I just wanted to get your view. And we talked through it, went ahead and did it. So, you know, though in the, you know, the, that, that's the difference, you know, for the plan situation and the emergency situation, there's always ways you can, people you can bounce ideas off, get support. So you make sure that you, are comfortable with your decision making and that you've done the right thing i think it's interesting i think you've made clear to me there's two aspects of uh kind of the people-based medicine you have your colleagues which you rely so much on and then also your patients which you have to supply a great level of care to so definitely would you say uh out of all the skills that you might possess for example uh, like academic uh knowledge and everything would you say uh communications up there Communication is absolutely key, you know, because you can 
you could do technically the best and i know i'm talking about operations it's just you know part of what i do but you know you could you could you could technically do the best operation ever but if your patient doesn't feel informed if they don't feel that they were part of that decision making if they don't feel that they've built rapport and trust then you know you've not to me necessarily done your job properly because that's absolutely a part of it like i said about colleagues being the heart of the nhs the colleagues being you know the heart of your you know getting you through the day sometimes that's about communication that's about relationships trust with and i'm not just talking about me and my fellow surgeons i'm talking about the ward nurses the porters in theatre the pharmacists that you know the the ward clerks the ward nurses just everyone that you'll the security team you know everyone you'll come into interaction with that you've, you've got to build that and you know it, it makes your day better but you do a better job for it so i've got one last question for you today and that's if you could pick any superpower what would it be <laughs> Uh, any superpower um so other than being a superstar dj like we've discussed already <laughs> um i i would i suppose it would be teleportation and right. i i don't mean in terms of i don't want to go like i said i don't want to go back in time and change anything i don't want to go forward in time and know what's going to happen what I mean by that is just being able to get from one place to the next with no downtime. Now, I love traveling. Um, you know, my brother and sister have worked around the world. I've been really fortunate because they've done that. I've been able to go and visit them in places. Right. I've, um, you know, had an amazing time as part of my um, elective that we had to do through med school. Um, I went and worked in new zealand i went and worked in canada for a bit and absolutely incredible places that i'd love to go back to you know my sister was in singapore and hong kong um amazing places i'd love to go back to but that flight that time the travel to the airport that time in the airport that time sat in a seat staring at a tiny screen watching a film i don't really want to watch so i'd love to be able to go today I, I just love to go and watch a test match in Christchurch in New Zealand. And the next thing you know, there you are. So that that would be awesome. You've justified that very <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for today, your insights and giving your time as well. I find it very helpful. Absolute pleasure. Massively good luck with what you do. It's, it's a great thing and you know, 